what amazing timing in God that we have passages today um, after this week celebrating the life of Jill um, to have a passage that opened with the title Words of Encouragement Regarding Those Who Have Died. And so um, I just want to add my acknowledgement, Rob, to the grief, um, but also to the hope. And that's what we're going to talk about today, both of those things. As we come to talk about... Oh, is there a clicker that I can have? Awesome. Because I... um, put lots of pictures in, because who wants to hear me talk when you can look at pictures? Uh, as soon as we start talking about things that we can't prove, or that we don't actually know, the only thing we can do is grasp at metaphors, grasp at images, or feelings, or, you know, there, there's things that we just, we can't put exact words around. And so uh, we come to things like metaphors and similes and we try our best to kind of paint a picture uh, and we use language that is understood to try and help explain things that maybe aren't understood. Uh, The scholar N.T. Wright talks about it as trying to describe colour to a blind person. They have no terms of reference for colour. And so we have to use words they do have terms of reference for to try and help them see what colour might be like. And so we might say things like, well, blue's a cool colour and red's a a warm colour or a hot colour. And they might be helpful. There can be a, a problem, though, if we take that metaphor too far because someone might come to think that everything that's warm is red. And in fact, that is... That's not the case. And so what we're going to do today is pick at some of these metaphors that we've seen in uh, what Paul was saying and try not to take them too far, um, but see what hope there is in what Paul is describing. Uh, Because for all of human existence, we have used metaphors and similes to describe God and to describe what eternal existence or existence after we die might look like. If we think about God, you know, we, we describe God as a shepherd, um, as a mother hen gathering chicks under her wing, uh, metaphor, father, metaphor, I would suggest. Um, there are some parts of the Christian church that would like to argue with me, but I think that's just another healthy metaphor of trying to describe what this God we serve is like. And when it comes to what happens when we die, uh, again, we are grasping for metaphors to try and explain, based on what we know, what we know of God, the promises that have been made. One that's really common is this idea of um, the soul escaping the mortal body at death and then going to dwell in this realm of perfection, of, of beauty. Does anyone know where that is in the Bible? Oh, lots of blank looks. Um, The answer is nowhere. Um, It's in Plato. 
that is an idea of Greek philosophy. And uh, so Plato had this idea that death was the separation of the soul from the body. And he, uh, he said, when, it, when the soul is joined to a body, the soul is only able to view existence through the bars of a prison and not in her own nature. She is wallowing in the mire of all ignorance. So Plato's idea was that our bodies are actually decaying and rotten and bad. And the only pure part is that which is within us, this, this soul that's kind of trapped inside its body. And one day, the body will die and the soul will be able to escape. Um, and that has been really influential, not only in future secular thought, but it's also impacted the way that we've interpreted many parts of the Bible over the years. For the ancient Israelites, it was a little bit different. So um, there's this word nephesh uh, in Hebrew. And um, nephesh literally actually just means neck because they figured out that the things that go in and out of your neck are pretty vital for life. You know, food and air. And when those things are stopped, life ceases. And so they had... They used that word nephesh to describe a bigger reality. And in lots of our Bible, it's translated soul. So when you hear, love the, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, that's the word nephesh. And in our minds, because we've been so influenced by Plato, a lot of the time we're thinking, love the Lord your God with all your, your heart, so all your emotions. Um, and actually for ancient Israelites, that was the place of decision-making as well. So all your emotions and your decisions... Um, with all your strength, with all your might, and with all your soul, we're thinking of this inner kind of thing that's not related to our bodies. Uh, but for them, this nephesh was actually a total being thing. And you actually see it uh, in um, Genesis chapter 2, where God forms a, a human breathes life into its nostrils and it becomes a living nephesh, a living being. And so for them, when, when we read the word soul in, in our scriptures, the idea that we should be applying is this idea of total being, body, spirit, everything as one whole. And so they're not thinking of that by the way, as an aside, when I found this picture, it was, it was called My Soul Left My Body When I Did the Steak Well Done, or something like that. <laughs> but anyway, it gets the point across. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this living being. Um, and so it goes, your soul goes from something that you have to something that you are. You are a living being. You are an nephesh. You are a soul. Um, and we can't, I can't use the word soul without thinking of it in the Plato way. So that's why I like this idea of living being. And so for them, the, the beauty of life was this embodied, living breath of God. So what did they think happened when we died? Well, they had this idea of a place called Sheol, and much of the ancient world had the same kind of idea. 
Um, and this is a picture of what they thought the universe, how they thought it was constructed. Um, and there's a whole sermon in how this shows that Genesis 1 is a poem and not a scientific description of creation. But we won't go there because that's not today's passage. Um, but if you see below the earth, there's this blackness called Sheol. And so obviously someone dies and we bury them. And then their body returns to the earth. And so down there somewhere was this realm of the dead, they called it. And we talk about life after death. But given that for them life necessitated a body, they didn't talk about life after death. They talked about Sheol as the place of the dead. It was like an existence, but it wasn't really life. Uh, and they didn't have anything beyond that at that stage. This was kind of um, early in the development of thinking around this kind of thing. As we move on in the story of Israel, we get to a place where um, Israel have turned from God, they've kind of done their own thing, and then Assyria come and take the top part of the country away, and then Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem. And this is a picture of Jeremiah sitting amongst some very amazing-looking humans considering their city's just been destroyed. Um, that is the way of art, I guess. But um, this is Jeremiah sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem, and all of their hopes were in this idea of Jerusalem being the crown and glory of the earth and showing the world what God was like. And here is Babylon come in and destroyed it and taken all the people off into captivity. And so they're in captivity and going, well, things aren't right now. What's going to happen? If God is faithful, what is going to happen? And this question is going to keep coming up, going, if God is, if God is good, if God is faithful, then what? And so they're out in captivity and they, they start to develop these ideas about what happens next. And these prophets speak into that and they give them hope, saying actually um, Israel is going to be restored. And there's all sorts of, again, metaphors and, and similes and things. There's pictures of, of a, a small shoot being replanted in Jerusalem and growing into a mighty tree and things that will give them hope that actually this is not the end. And for them, this was like a death, a death of their, their country, a death of their hopes, a death of their dreams. But they got this hope that something new was going to get planted and that would rise and that would become something completely new for the world. And they got to go back to their land uh, when the Persians were ruling, but they still didn't get control over it. So this, this thing just kept um, bubbling underneath them. And so they started thinking, well, maybe we need to be the sort of Israel that God would come back for. Maybe we need to be Israel in the right kind of way. And that gave rise to some of the groups that you've heard of in the Gospels, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, and then some other groups like the Essenes, who we don't hear of as much because they'd gone out camping in the desert to try and escape from everyone else and be the perfect Israel out there. But all of these groups are trying to be Israel in a way that will then uh, convince God that it's time to come back and rule the world with them and make everything right again to make it beautiful again, which is a, a great dream. The, the problem was that as they were doing this, 
some of them died. Some of them were in fact martyred because they were standing for this dream. And so then the thought developed, well, if God is good, and if God is going to do this, putting everything right, surely he's not going to just dismiss those who have died. Surely those who have died will get brought into his plans too. And their plan wasn't to have God come back and get rid of the world and start again. Their plan or their their idea of God was that God would come, dwell amongst them and rule the world and see everything right. And this they called the new age. And this they also called eternal life. Because when God came back and set everything right, it would destroy the death that had been created in Genesis and we would live with God forever. So when they thought of eternal life, they weren't whisking away somewhere. They were living with God on earth forever. But those who have died, if they were to be part of that, what for them? And that's where a belief in resurrection started to develop. And so some groups believed in resurrection and some didn't. Um, my, I went to a Christian primary school and I remember my primary school teacher telling me the Pharisees did believe in uh, the resurrection and the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection and that's why they were sad, you see. Um, and I've never forgotten it. And now I can tell those two groups apart. Um, but there is something in that, that actually this belief in a resurrection brings about hope that it's not just going off into some Sheol realm of the dead, which is what they had believed in their past. There is this belief now that God will vindicate and bring justice and rise those who have died in him. And in the midst of all of that, we get the person of Jesus. And there's a, um, a famous painting of uh, Thomas inspecting Jesus' wounds after the resurrection. And one of the interesting things about Jesus' life is that Jesus didn't die and rise from death. Jesus rose through death. And what I mean by that is Lazarus, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And he was raised from death into the body that he'd been in and he was going to die again at some point. Jesus entered death and came out the other side in a body that wasn't susceptible to decay and death. It still bore the marks of the crucifixion. He still had the scars, so he was still him. But, you know, there was this body that they kind of couldn't really explain what was happening because he could eat fish, so he wasn't a ghost. Um, He had his scars, so it was Jesus, but they hadn't recognised him on the road to Emmaus, so they could recognise him, and yet they couldn't recognise him. Um, And then also he could appear in locked rooms, but he wasn't a ghost. And so there was all this stuff of this new body that was like the old one, but not like the old one, transformed from the old one, still very much Jesus, but something more eternal. And this was uh, the first sign of this hope that had developed of this eternal life in God was the body of Jesus. And so when we get to Paul, he, he built on 
all of the stuff that had gone before, his hope in this new age to come, this new age of eternal life with God, of embodied life with God. Uh, and so in that Thessalonians passage, he, he starts off by um, talking about those who have died. And he said, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And I think the important thing to note here is he doesn't say, so that you may not grieve. That is not what Paul says here. That was what others at the time were saying. That hope uh, should mean that we don't grieve. We don't have to, but because we've got this hope. And we see that in some of the more triumphalistic church expressions that we have in our world. Where there's just no ability to deal with any kind of suffering. But we also don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. Because that's a worse kind of grief. A grief without hope is depression, is despair. A grief with hope is extreme and immense sadness and is heartbreaking. But there is a glimmer in there of the life of God that keeps us going, that keeps us believing that something good is coming. And Paul carries on and says, God will bring with him those who have died. And he hasn't actually said from where God will bring with him. He, in this passage, he hasn't actually talked about that yet. So we're like, oh, with him from where? Uh, but there was that belief in their, uh, in their churches that Jesus had gone but was coming back. He'd given his spirit, but... Jesus was going to return. Oh, actually, just a note on that one. Um, he says, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. So Paul here is a very clear belief that he will be alive when Jesus comes back. Um, which he got wrong. Just if we need to clarify that. Essentially, I was reading this and going, actually, I more assume that I won't be alive when Jesus comes back, but who knows? Maybe we will. Um, but I, I find that really encouraging because, again, Paul is grasping at this. Paul is doing his best here. Paul is not giving us the definitive word on everything that will happen because he knows. Because actually, he doesn't know. He just knows the goodness of God and he knows the beliefs that have arisen because of the goodness of God in his culture and he's building on that because of the life of Jesus. For the Lord himself with a cry of command with all the archangel, uh, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Uh, there was the ascension and the belief came and I think it's actually stated in either the end of Luke or the start of Acts where we get the ascension story and it says he will return the way that he left. And so there was this kind of idea of Jesus coming back on the clouds. Um, and so those who will rise first, again, we've got this idea of resurrection now coming in. Those who have died will rise. And... First of all, before I talk about this verse, isn't that good news? 
that it's not about some disembodied spirit off somewhere. It is about the people that we know and love, and then ultimately us too, rising into new eternal life with God, recognisable as who they were, fully themselves and yet somehow transformed to be free of the pain, free of the cancers, free of the heartaches, to live eternally with God in this new age that God will come and begin. And the best we get from Paul about what happens in between dying and the resurrection is when he says, you know, I actually wish that I could die and go and be with Jesus. But actually he's got work for me to do here. So I'll keep doing that. But that's kind of as much as we get that when we die, we are somehow with Jesus. And whether that's because there is a state in between or whether because we die and then we just rise because time becomes a non-factor or we just don't know. But what we do know is that God is good and that we get to be with Jesus and those who we love who have died get to be with Jesus. And in this last bit here, he, he says, we will be caught up into the clouds together to meet with them with the Lord in the air. And um, just a couple of points on this, because this is like a really weird bit. Um, the rest of it kind of seems to make sense, and then we're like, oh, we, we're, we're floating up into clouds and things that, what's happening here? Um, again, metaphor. Okay, we need to be careful not to say that everything hot is red. <laughs> and so this verse has come to mean for a section of the church that we will disappear off into the clouds and disappear off with Jesus somewhere else um, because we're raising up. He's taking us up and um, many of you will have heard of the rapture and that's the idea that we're taken up into the clouds and then away with Jesus. But actually that belief relies on Plato's idea of these disembodied uh, spirits because we're going off to some other spirit world, something like that. What's happening here is that clouds have always been, in the Jewish story, a sign of God's presence. A cloud descended on the temple, a cloud descended on the tabernacle to show God's presence there. Moses went up into the clouds to receive the commandments, and he came back glowing from the presence of God. Clouds are a metaphor for us of the presence of God. So being caught up into the clouds is being caught up into the presence, the full presence of God. The other thing that's going on here is that um, Thessalonica, who Paul was writing to, were a Roman colony. And uh, their tradition, when a noble person came, the emperor or one of the emperor's representatives was coming to their city, was that when they realised they were coming they would send out a delegation out to meet them. And then what would they do? They would escort them back to the city. And so the picture Paul has here is not of us going up to the clouds and disappearing, but of us going to meet the coming Jesus and escorting him back 
to our place that he will transform. To live and dwell amongst us in a world that is renewed and set right. A world that will be remade. And we talk about a new heavens and a new earth, but um, think of that less as scrapping this one and starting a new one and more as taking an antique chair and restoring it and making it new, making it better than it was. That's the idea Paul paints for us and the rest of the, the New Testament paints for us of what is coming next. And that actually gives us insight into how we are to live now because if, if it's about the world becoming better and the world being remade, then as the people of God, our task is to help that process along to bring beauty and joy and goodness into the world in the midst of pain and suffering and loss. Ultimately, our task is, well, not our task, sorry, our belief is around all of this stuff that God is good. And while we've got all these ideas of where it seems to be heading, what the scriptures tell us about where, where this is all heading. Ultimately, we have to keep coming back to God is good. God is just. And God will bring that goodness and that justice to fruition as he sets everything right in the coming age. Those who have died those who are alive, all united with Christ together, being with the Lord forever in eternal life in the new age. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thank you.